My name is Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. And this is the Two Lawyers Walk Into a Bar podcast. We are joined tonight by Sylvia Serpi. Sylvia is the founding partner of Serpi Ryan LLP. The firm focuses on defending individuals and corporations against civil or criminal investigations by government agencies. Welcome to the podcast, Sylvia. Great to be here. And tonight we are sponsored by, how do you say this? Dagajolo Toscano? I'm not touching that. Okay. We're not really sponsored by them, but that's what we're drinking in studio because Sylvia asked for a bottle of red wine. I walked into the local liquor store and asked for red wine with a twist off. And this it's is not what bad. we have. It's actually, yeah, it's pretty decent. I like right? it. Right? Yeah. Cooper's drinking the wine. I am drinking the wine despite the terrible hangover that I have today. You're not supposed to talk about the hangover on air. It's more interesting than most of what we talk about. So, And let's hear all about the hangover. <laughs> How did it start? How did it end? No, let's get let's get into let's it. Let's talk about Sylvia. <laughs> Sylvia, before we get started, there we we um our firms actually have something interesting in common, which is your partner, his name is Paul Ryan, right? Correct. Our partner is named Michael Flynn, our third partner. So we have that. That is funny. Both of us have a Republican, not disgraced Republicans. Ours is ours Michael Flynn is way worse than Paul Ryan. Paul right Ryan's now. not disgraced. No, I know. He's just leaving, but not disgraced. Yeah. We like to say it's the Paul Ryan at our firm. I feel like we always say, not that Michael Flynn. It's I have to admit we do that a bit too. <laughs> well, Michael Flynn's dad is also named Michael Flynn, and his son is named Michael Flynn. So wow. it's a very confusing scenario overall. Not, not the Michael Flynn. We're starting to talk in circles now. It's a, it's a tongue twister. All right, let's get into it. So, Sylvia, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I grew up in Costco, which is a part of Greenwich, Connecticut. I like to say it was the uh, other side of the tracks in Greenwich, but it was a great place to grow up. I'm the first-generation daughter of two Italian immigrants, and I just went to your local public schools there. It was an excellent, excellent upbringing. Do you have brothers upbringing. and sisters? I do. I have two older brothers. Either of them lawyers? One of them is my oldest lawyer, Gino Serpi, is a solo out in San Diego, so I'll do a shout-out to him. Okay. He likes to say that he paved the road for me to go to law school. The jury's out on that one. (laughs) Did he go to Pepperdine? He did not go to Pepperdine. Okay. He went to New York Law School. Got it. But not NYU Law School, which (laughs) is an even worse thing to have to constantly say to people, Uh right? I want to go Almost to Pepperdine. Almost as bad as now. Michael Flynn. I'd love to go to Pepperdine. Wouldn't I don't know why great? I don't go to Pepperdine. We all Pepperdine should. isn't in San Diego, is it? It's in LA, right? No, it's San Diego, isn't it? I don't know. But you're right. We all should have gone <laughs> warm. I don't know why we all went to the Finger Lakes area for schools, which was Yeah, you, you were there for your entire scholastic career, right? Seven straight years. In you went to Cornell and Ithaca, New York. And then. I did, straight through. Straight through. Straight through. Wow. Yeah. There was a chance I wasn't going to, though. I was, at one point, I thought I was going to go to Indiana University. For undergrad? For law school. For law school. Okay. And then uh, I thought I was going to go to UConn, so what I considered my, my state school, my safety school. But I was one of those uh, persons who's off the charts so my grades were always good, and my standardized tests were always bad, really bad. I took the LSAT when they first switched the format, and I bombed it, 
And then the biggest mistake of my life is I took it again, <laughs> and I did worse. Yes, what was, it's actually possible. What was the possible. switch in format? I don't even know about that. I don't remember. It was a switch in grading, but I had a couple of deans tell me that they would have just looked at me as an oddity and a product of the switch. But when I took it again and did worse, they figured, wow, no, she really does have a problem here. And so I, I waitlisted everywhere. Yeah, in your cover letter, you could have just wrote, I'm the oddity, instead of, I don't know what you wrote in your cover letter, but exactly the, the basic generic stuff that goes into a cover letter to law schools. That's right. That's <laughs> right. But I was lucky enough to get reserve listed at Cornell. I mean, who knew that that's some sort of list that exists above the wait list? So sounds for all nice. those... It sounds nice to be reserve listed. Isn't it? Yeah. And, and I feel bad for the poor schmucks who are on the wait list because <laughs> they're excited and they think they have a shot. And actually they don't because there's an entire group of people above them. So I was on the reserve list, and at the last minute, I got a spot at Cornell Law. Where were you planning on going if you didn't get into Cornell? I was going to go to UConn, and I started to think that it was going to be great. I was going to get a car. I grew up in Connecticut. I thought I was going to be a public interest lawyer, that I would move to D.C. after law school. And I you know, thought I had it all figured out, but I did really try to get into Cornell. I let them know that if they let me in at the last second, I would go. And in fact, they did days why, before school. Why public interest? Why did 21-year-old Sylvia have an interest in, in that? That is a good question. I don't know. I was young and liberal-hearted, and I wanted to do good, really. I mean, it was that simple. Yeah. I wanted to help people. I always wanted to go to law school. I was one of those Freaks of nature that in, <laughs> I think, sixth or seventh grade, I did some sort of mock court competition in my school. And someone came up to me afterwards, one of the judges, and kindly said, you know, oh, you're a natural. And to this day, I don't remember who he was, but thank you, whoever you are out there, because because of you, my brain was inflated and my ego inflated. And uh, from that point on, I wanted to go to law school. I defended Captain Hook in ninth grade. Really? He, <laughs> he walked the plank. I did. I remember in, in, I think it was middle school, we did a trial of Hansel and Gretel. I remember it really well. And I think I, I'm pretty sure I was Hansel. <laughs> oh, you were the defendant. I was, I was the defendant. Yeah. I, mean, I, like, I would have take the thought that you'd stand. be Gretel, but it's a conversation for a different it's pod. Terrible. Um, um, go ahead. So public interest is interesting to you. Um, what, was there something about UConn? Did they have a public interest program that was appealing, or was it just because it was your safety school, you were kind of looking at it as a, a sure thing? It was. I I actually got waitlisted at UConn as well, but I got off their waitlist, and so then I mentally prepared to go to UConn. Right. But there's nothing about the program that I remember. I think maybe I thought I'd save some money, get a car, be closer to home, and I really thought I'd end up in Washington, D.C. Did you accept the offer at UConn? And I think I did accept the offer at UConn, yeah. yes, and probably lost some sort of deposit. Was it difficult going from undergrad at Cornell to law school? Was that transition hard? I went to Michigan, and I know that there were a lot of people who went straight through, did the same thing. And I feel like for a lot of them, it was a very difficult transition just because the difference between undergrad and grad school is so different, yet they still had like all the same bars there that they used to go to, and a lot of their friends were still there. And I think that was kind of a hard transition for some people. That's true. And a lot of people compare Michigan to Ithaca. 
Yeah. It wasn't that bad for me, I think, for a couple of reasons. I spent probably more time on campus as an undergraduate. Uh, so I didn't live in college town for that many years. And so when I went to law school, I did spend all three years of law school living in college town, which is super fun. And I did a year at Cornell and Washington as an undergrad. Mm. So it got me off the campus. So it wasn't too awkward to be up in Ithaca for seven straight years, although I could certainly do without the weather for sure. Sure. And then at what point did you start um, thinking about going into a firm after law school as opposed to the public interest career? So what happens in law school, as you guys probably know, is you you start to figure out what are you going to do for your 1L job and your 2L job. And at Cornell, your 1L job was never going to be a law firm, really. Most people told you to just go and find a job that you want to do. I I went to Washington, D.C. I worked, I think, possibly for a Ralph Nader organization that summer. And then you uh, at Cornell, you're given an opportunity to buy lottery to interview with law firms that come to Cornell. And I was lucky enough to get a slot at Davis Polk. I really knew very little about it. And I interviewed at a number of different firms, and Davis Polk gave me an offer for my 2L summer. Did you crush your 1L year? Did you have really good grades? I had good grades. I was, I don't, I wouldn't say that I was, uh, you know, in the tippy top of the class, mm-hmm. but I certainly did well at Cornell. I right. think I graduated cum laude. And I think it's a shame that it all, a lot of it depends on your first year grades. Totally. So that, certainly helped me, but I think there was some luck involved. I was lucky enough to get an interview slot with Davis Polk. I was the only person at Cornell Law School to go to Davis Polk. Hmm. You said, and, and that was a random thing? Like it was random what firms you end up in, you ended up interviewing with? I think it was. There might have been a rating system as well, uh-huh. but I, I remember not knowing much about any of these law firms. And I remember being in the law review room uh, and I have this distinct memory of talking to a colleague of mine and saying, "Do I go to Cor- do I go to Davis Polk or not?" And he just said to me, "Like, yeah, of course you're going to go to Davis Polk. Like, it's one of the top firms in New York City." And at the time, I was one of two public interest coordinators at Cornell Law School. I think it was even a paid job, and I just felt like I was a complete traitor to public interest law, that if I were to accept this position at Davis Polk, I would be completely turning my back on everything that I thought I was going to do in life. Did you have a narrative in your head that you would come back to public interest law? Absolutely. I still do. We do a little bit of pro bono work at our law firm, but I give my law partner, Paul, a lot of credit for that because he fits it in a lot more than I do right now. But talk to me in about five years when my kids are older and I think I'll be doing a lot more pro bono work. Do you remember anything about the Davis Polk summer associate interview process at all? Someone came to Cornell and interviewed there. And then I was asked to go and interview in New York in their New York offices. I do remember that. And I remember going to Davis Polk and thinking everybody's just really nice. And everybody kind of looks nice, too. I mean, it's sort of a... a a weird memory to have. Uh, but it is. It's a genteel firm. It's it's a great group of people. I definitely don't regret it. 
I think I would have had a very different life had I gone to UConn, but it's sort of like that movie of, what is it, Sliding Doors? Sliding Doors, sure. Yeah. I, I would have had a very different life. Whether one life is better than the other, I really don't know. But I never would have gotten to Davis Polk out of UConn. I mean, Davis Polk does an interview at UConn. I highly doubt if you just send a resume from from UConn that Davis Polk is really going to look at you. What kind of work did you do at Davis Polk? I got really lucky. So in my summer year, I could put on a team, a small trial team in state Supreme Court. And then because of that, I got pegged as a trial associate. So I went back to Davis Polk after I graduated from Cornell Law School. And I remember that this partner came up to me and said, hey, I heard you had been on a trial team when you were summer here. And I said, yes. And he said, do you have any interest in and joining a trial team, yes. You know, all I wanted to do was to get in the courtroom and to be part of trial teams. And I got really lucky at Davis Polk. I didn't have the experience that a lot of people worry about at a big firm where you're going to be stuck in a room looking at documents. My experience in big law. (laughs) Yeah. And at Davis Polk at that time, they represented uh, Philip Morris. So there was a lot of cigarette litigation and there's a lot of rooms back then with many, many documents. So I was super lucky. I was on a trial team of about uh, 10 or 12 people. It was as though we were in war together. We all got incredibly close. We, in the last, I think a couple of years ago, we actually had a reunion of our trial team. Cool. And then I was on a, I believe, two other trial teams before I left Davis Polk to clerk for Judge Stein. During your 3L year, was there ever a thought about going anywhere else other than Davis Polk, or were you set on Davis Polk after working there the previous summer? I was set on Davis Polk. I think the thing for me was, do I do this, or do I go straight into public interest law? And I remember people saying to me, Go to Davis Polk because even the sort of high-profile public interest organizations are going to be impressed by that or Mm -hmm. are going to want that experience from you, and you're not closing doors. And Also, did you have the offer at the end of your 2L summer? Yes. You did? Yeah. Which makes a huge difference. It's a huge difference. I mean, I I sometimes tell people, too, who are in similar positions, who are, like, thinking about, should I go to the firm? I didn't love my firm summer. Or should I, you know, interview this year and try and get a public interest job? It makes such a difference in your entire 3L year to have that job. They paid for, at least in my case, they paid for my bar class. They paid moving costs to move back to New York City, like all these things. And, you know, you stay for a couple years. I stayed for two years in big law, and then I was out. Um, I, th- I think it's worth it, honestly. It was great. I, honestly, I I can't complain about it. Yeah. There are many of my classmates didn't have a job yet, and you can almost see it on their faces in the hallways. I mean, it, right. it lifts a burden. I should have had a much easier 3L experience, but I was on law review and ended up, my note ended up being published. So I think I did a lot more work than in 3L than I, uh, in what retrospect, really wanted. My note was on the reviewability of environmental impact statements. Oh, that was my note, too. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Big snooze. I can see you guys yawning already. Don't even ask me how I came upon that topic. I really have no idea how so, I so did it. Tell us about the reviewability of environmental 
<laughs> no. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's just like throwing around words. It's like if you really asked me to try and unpack that, I don't even think I could. Yeah. Do you know what an environmental impact statement is? These days, it probably doesn't mean much of anything, but... Uh, That's probably true. Yeah. And I don't know what it is. I mean, I could, but so, I... So what precipitated the move to clerk for the judge? Tell us about that process. That was great. So I really wanted to clerk. When I was at Cornell Law School, I sent out probably 100 letters. And at the time, Cornell Law didn't really help its students. That's my one criticism. I hear now that Cornell Law is doing an incredible job at getting their students into clerkships. I applied to 100 you mean, uh, they different... Didn't, they didn't really help with respect to clerkships. They, that wasn't their area that they were focusing they on. They really didn't. I mean, it, if you if you look around, Fordham will do a ton. You've got a lot of judges who went to Fordham who are loyal to Fordham students and will hire Fordham students as clerks. And I just felt like nobody was really looking out for Cornell students. And I applied to judges all over New York, Boston, Philadelphia... I had a couple of interviews, but I didn't get a clerkship. And so I wanted, I was one of the rare lawyers to start Davis Polk of my class who didn't clerk first. Right. So most of my summer class, I frankly barely knew because right. in my first year at Davis Polk, they're all clerking with the judge and I'm at the firm. I think it's much more them. common now to have people do what you did. It's much more common for people to go and work for two years at a firm and then go to clerk. It is. Whereas a couple years ago, I think that sort of shifted. I think that's right, and I highly recommend it. I think it's better for judges, and I also think it's better for the law clerk. You actually know a little bit about litigation or about the law, and then you can go help a judge, and I think you see it in an entirely different perspective. I also think, from based on my friends' experiences, I think it's sometimes nice, too, to... Uh, you you know work your ass off when you're in big law, and not that you don't work crazy hours when you're doing a clerkship, but it's definitely it, it's more relaxed than big law. So I do think sometimes it's nice to have that transition where you get sort of a, a short reprieve from the big law hours. It is, and I like to say it's the eight day way of getting out of a big law firm. I heard that Judge Stein was looking for an immediate third law clerk. I applied, and eight days later, I got the job. And everybody at Davis Polk loves the fact that you're going to clerk. So it's a very, very easy way to leave a big <laughs> law firm without offending anyone. Right. But you went back to Davis Polk after, I didn't right? end up going back. I oh, didn't. ended up applying to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Civil Division. And at the same time that my application was in, I started looking at smaller firms. I had pretty much decided I would not go back to Davis Polk. Even though I had a great experience there, I could not imagine going back to a big law firm setting. So you, you said previously that you that you never circled back to public interest, but you kind of did. I mean, the U.S. Attorney's Office, Civil Division, you were, you were doing public true. interest law. No, you're, you're absolutely right. That is true. And it's it's a great job, and I think a lot of people know nothing about the Civil Division, so I'll just give a shout-out there to look into it because yeah. it is one of the best jobs I've ever had in life. And if you have any qualms about being a prosecutor, it's great to be in the office, but be out there defending government agencies as opposed to putting people behind bars. So I love that job. I did cases from start to finish. So you're literally answering a complaint, taking the case to trial. That's vertical. 
So you're handling it for the entire process? The entire time, yeah. all the way up to the second circuit. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's great. And you can work, one day you might be working on an employment discrimination case against the Smithsonian. You're representing the Smithsonian. And the next day might be a slip and fall case where someone sued the Postal Service. And then the next day it could be this incredibly intellectual tax issue that mm-hmm. you're researching. So it was really so great. Good practice for running your own your own practice, right? It was an excellent learning experience in that regard. I never had a secretary and I frankly never needed one to this day. I still haven't had a secretary. You learn to do everything on your own. And I still sort of believe that the person who reads the cases and writes the brief is probably going to be best equipped to speak in front of that judge. It doesn't happen at most firms. I think law firms are built in a way that doesn't foster that model. But small firms like yours and like mine, we can still do that. And I think it makes a difference for clients because you're really, you're the one who's learning the facts, you're learning the law, and you're going to be the most articulate. Did Was the U.S. Attorney's Office in the back of your mind from the time you started at Davis Polk? No, I never knew about it. And at, the, at Davis Polk, everybody talks about the criminal division. And it was by word of mouth. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had lunch with someone who was then at the civil division. I barely knew him, met him through a colleague who was at Davis Polk. And we sat down for lunch and he said, you know, you ought to really think about the civil division. I said, I know nothing about this. What is it? So, well, you're going to get into court. You're going to try all these cases and I, when I put my application in, I actually put in the cover letter that I was only interested in civil, which is mm-hmm. really rare. I don't think that happens very often. And when I went through the interview process, I had a couple of prosecutors try to convince me to go to the criminal division instead. But I'm, I'm happy. I, at, in my heart of hearts, I'm, I'm truly a defense lawyer. So am I as a former prosecutor. So I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. Did um, during the interview process for the U.S. Attorney's Office, uh, do you think being on a trial team at Davis Polk or being on a couple of trial teams did that put you in a different position than maybe other people who were interviewing or other people that you started with in the class when you actually got there? Yeah, it certainly didn't hurt. Yeah, and for me to have been able to see the process is invaluable, and I think sometimes you have to asked for it, right? I got my clerkship because I, I told people at Davis Polk that I wanted to clerk. I had that yeah. out out there. And I think sometimes you really have to tell lawyers at these firms what it is that you want. And you may not get it immediately, but at least hopefully people are remembering that, oh, Sylvia really wants a trial or, oh, Sylvia really wants to clerk. And that if that opportunity arises, you'll be someone that they're going to consider for it. Yeah. Were you also, I mean, you were sending out letters to judges. Were those cold letters that you were sending? Absolutely. Back then, That's amazing. You, you you did a a mail merge. You know, I had my letter prepared, and then I had a whole bunch of addresses, and you just sent out a ton of letters. I, I don't, I would hope that that's not how it's done today. And like I said, I've heard that Cornell is doing a much better job at helping their students get clerkships. Uh, but nowadays, I don't think you can get a job by cold mailings anymore yeah. either. But that's the way I think all three of us grew up, right? I mean, we grew up in a world where you would blindly 
send someone a yeah. resume. And nowadays, I think... That's what I've been doing for the last couple of weeks. No wonder why you're having trouble. <laughs> it's all networking now. Yeah. That's the name of the game. They literally need to have networking 101 at law schools. But what I was going to say is a theme through a lot, of the, a lot of the job opportunities that you created for yourself, the theme that I'm hearing is aggression in different ways. So whether it's talking to people at the firm and telling them, I want to do this, or it's sending out letters to judges, or it's having a lunch with someone you barely know and, and picking their brain as to what you should do next. You know, a lot of law students, young lawyers kind of think things are going to be handed to them because they're going to law school or they're, or they're a lawyer or they're going to fall into something. And it sounds like you took it upon yourself to make sure that you got what you wanted. You do. You have to ask for it. I went to, a, I think, a 10-day, 7-day or 10-day trial training program while I was at Davis Polk. One of the best things I've ever done. To this day, I still remember it. <laughs> NIDA, right? NIDA. Yeah. It's great. And I had to ask for that. I don't think they, I mean, they may have, sure, they may have offered it uh, to the associates then. I really don't remember. But you have to take advantage of all those opportunities. You can't say, oh, I'm really busy. I'm going to let this pass. As an associate, I think you really have to say, I'm going to make time for this. I want this. I want this in my life. It's great. You do. You have to ask for it. And I kind of take that uh, approach in my law firm today. I mean, anybody who knows me sees me at parties, and I let everybody know I'm looking for business constantly. <laughs> sure. it, it's sort of a running joke, actually. But I, I do. I think you have to ask for things. People aren't going to necessarily think of you, and you would – you would hope that you're going to be thought of, but sometimes you have to remind people what it is you want so that they can connect the dots. It's a great piece of advice because everyone's at these functions, these committees, these parties looking for business, but they're kind of dancing around the edges, right? They're not talking about it. It's the elephant in the room. That's right. So, so it makes sense to just be upfront about it and ask exactly what you want. I completely slap them with it. Years ago, someone told me, oh, don't ever tell anyone that you're slow. And now I walk around, I'm slow right now, and I walk around at functions and say, hey, I'm slow, I'm kind of bored. Think of me if you have a criminal trial. Yeah, I think I have something for you. Great, we'll talk after. <laughs> Sylvia, can you talk a little bit about the, the difference in lifestyle as an associate at Davis Polk versus working in the U.S. Attorney's Office? Just living in New York and financial considerations and hours, those type things? Yes. I worked really hard at both jobs. I pulled my first all-nighter at Davis Polk, which is unusual. But we were on a trial team, and we were in Washington, D.C., and I, I'm really a sleep Nazi. So I'm the type of person at 11 p.m. I'm going to start yawning. I've never believed anyone who says they do their best thinking at, at two in the morning. I think that's absolute BS. I do it the best two in the morning with a bourbon in hand. Exactly. I'm gonna call I'm gonna bourbons. call you out on that right now. <laughs> but that wasn't me. And so I pulled my first all nighter then. I'll never forget that. But then I went to the US Attorney's office and I think I was working six days consistently a week. Uh, you have a ton of deadlines and they tell you the minute you get that job that part of being a good lawyer is learning how to manage your docket. And they tell you, so you're going to have to ask for extensions. But I had a number of cases that were in White Plains, and back then it was known as the Rocket Docket. And you knew you would never get an extension granted from the White Plains judges. So I was working really hard at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, financially, Every job from Davis Polk was a salary de decrease, I think. Yeah, so that's hard, too. 
That's hard, too. And I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office for about five years. But I would never... I, I don't regret it at all. I, I thought about pulling my application at one point because I was going to go to a boutique firm in downtown Manhattan. And they extended me an offer, and they took me out to dinner. The women of that law firm took me out to dinner, and they tried to tell me, like, don't go to the U.S. Attorney's Office, especially the civil division. You may not agree with all the policies of the Justice Department. And I was really torn. It was a great firm. But at the end of the day, I really do believe that you take any opportunity that's going to open more doors for you because you can always close doors, right? We can all close that door when we want yeah, to. But you can't slide doors. That's right. <laughs> Only in those suburban homes. Right. Was there any difference practicing in those two environments as a woman? I never thought about the fact that I'm a woman lawyer until the last few years. It's interesting. It really never had those lenses on. And in the last couple of years, I've noticed a couple of things. I've been told by lawyers sometimes that I'm being hired because I'm a woman, which is an interesting thing. I never That's know wild. quite how to react to that. They You've usually been told do, by, by who's, who's telling you this? Often by referring lawyers or uh-huh. by the decision maker that one of the reasons why we're, we're having you come on board is because you're a woman. And then I think they pause and take a moment and realize how that might sound and so then they, of course, say, well, and of course, you're, you're a great lawyer. And, uh, but I, I think that exists. I think there is some thought about what the jury wants to see, what judges want to see. I've been at bar meetings lately where judges have spoken about the fact that they do. They want to see more women up there. And what they don't want to see is the male partner who's in charge, but really the female associate knows all the facts and law, the judges are starting to get frustrated. And some of them are calling you out and just saying, yeah, let me hear from her. Sounds like she really knows what she's talking about. But otherwise, at Davis Polk and at the U.S. Attorney's Office, I never thought about the fact that I was a female lawyer. Now, as a criminal defense lawyer, I think there are less women in that field I think there are less women that are becoming partners at Davis Polk, and I don't know why. And I know there's a lot of energy and time being spent on that question. But most of my career, I've really never thought much about the fact that I'm a woman. Was there any thought about going back to Davis Polk at any point in time? Was that ever a consideration? I didn't think about that. And, you know, right here... Now, maybe maybe I should have thought of that, leaving the civil division. I, I responded to an ad from a, a headhunter. I didn't realize it was a headhunter. An ad that said, we're looking, we're a firm, a national name brand firm, looking for a senior associate who will try cases and arbitrations. And I remember thinking, wow, I can, I can get paid money to go out and continue doing what I'm doing now. And I ultimately ended up taking many, many months of an interviewing process and and a decision process. And I I went to Aaron Fox. I went to their New York office at the time. And I don't think I really gave Davis Polk a chance at that point. So I, I don't know what that would have been like. How did all your experiences up to that point prepare you for that interview process? 
the interview process where? At, um, I think you went to... Uh, Aaron Fox afterwards? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Aaron Fox, the, the interview process was similar to what you experience as a law student. You go, you meet with the partners. I think I had to make a trip to their to their D.C. office, meet with partners there. Um, I do think interviewing and getting comfortable with interviewing is key, as I'm sure you guys will agree. And if if you're not comfortable, I think you should practice with friends. I remember practicing with friends of mine to help them prepare for interviews, and I think that's priceless. Did you what was the what was the experience like going from uh, being a U.S. attorney back into private practice? Did you find that difficult? That Did was you, a hard transition, yeah. and I tell everybody now that I sort of have a four season rule in life. I think transitions always take about four seasons, whether it's professionally or personally. And I think that's true when I made that transition. The first year is tough. And the one thing I remember the most is I left the government where I had a paper calendar, a large one on my desk, and I went to this law firm job. And you look at your calendar and there's there's nothing on it. <laughs> and it's hard. It's hard to get used to that difference. You know, it got to the point where I didn't have to check my calendar, really. There was so little happening as opposed to the U.S. Attorney's Office where you might have an expert report due. You need to be in court that day. You've got to get discovery out. I mean, you literally have 20 things to do in 10 different cases. And I, I thrive on that. Did you think you made a mistake at any point? I don't think any move I've made has been a mistake. I didn't spend a lot of time at Aaron Fox, but I left. I made, met some great people there. I've gotten some great referrals from that experience. So I don't regret anything I've done. And you left to start your own practice. I ended up leaving Aaron Fox and joining a small litigation boutique called Krantz and Berman. And they're great. Uh, they do criminal and civil work. And... I had reached out to Margie Berman just as a colleague, someone I knew from the inn of court, and I left her a voicemail message saying, hey, confidentially speaking, I'm thinking about going on on my own, was hoping I could pick your brain. And I left that message like on a Friday when you're just, you're having one of those law firm weeks and you're just so blue and you think, all right, I got to make a game plan to get out of here. And I never expected the transition to happen so quickly. She called me back immediately. She said she she was looking, she and Larry were looking to hire someone and they took me out to dinner and I told them I wanted to build a practice. And they said, well, great, build it here. We'll give you a salary. We'll give you a percentage of any business you bring in. And I said, that's fine. And it was really a very nice way to transition into going out on your own. I know a lot of people out there are really afraid of that. And they all say, oh my gosh, it's it's incredible you did that. How did you find the nerve to do it? But it really helped that I had been at a firm and I started getting my own cases and building some of the confidence and also learning what it's like to, to run a small firm. And after being at Cranston Berman for about five years, then I set up my own shop. I did that for four years. And then I met Paul Ryan. So tell us about that breakfast with Paul that changed your life. Yes. So I was feeling a little bored as a solo at this point, I will say. I had uh, one firm had approached me to join them, a small firm, 
as sort of their third partner. And I, I remember thinking, eh, I don't want to go downtown. I don't want to be part of this threesome where I'm clearly coming in and they've got a longstanding relationship. And then that's, <laughs> yeah, that's my experience. I feel for you. <laughs> I know it's hard. We might need to have a little therapy session we after should. this. You guys could have a conversation outside of your shot of me. Exactly. <laughs> so then I was asked by this guy, Paul Ryan to have breakfast. I always say yes, by the way, I feel like that's another yeah. thing. Always make time when people, constantly say to me, Sylvia, will you take a phone call? I gave people your name. They want to talk about going out on their own or they're not sure what they want to do. I always say yes, because why not? Sure. Right? I mean, we're here to help people. And and frankly, you never know where that's going to lead. And so I had breakfast with Paul. It was in the month of May. So this month, six years ago, we had breakfast. He was giving in the pros and cons of going out on your own. And I told him that one of the cons is it can get kind of lonely. Lonely, And I said, listen, don't tell anyone, but I'm actually thinking about trying to find a partner. And he said, well, hold off on that because, you know, I'd, I would really love the opportunity to talk to you more about this. And from breakfast, I took him to my office on Madison Park and I showed him where I work. And I, by Monday morning, we had decided we were going to partner and, with and each other. And what was it about that relationship? Why him? Why did why did that work? He bought breakfast. It was exactly. It well, no, was, I met I met a lot of people, and before I, you know, I was by myself and thought about joining a couple different op, a couple different other firms. And then you know there was something about Lee and his partner that that just felt right. Sure. I mean, look at bottom, it was a great leap of faith. But I met Paul through a mutual. Uh, colleague, so someone I had worked at Davis Polk with, was Paul's college roommate at Georgetown. And so I felt like I had done my due diligence. I spoke frankly with Paul's former roommate and learned a lot about Paul. And the fact that Paul had been at the SEC and he really wanted to find this combination of SEC, U.S. Attorney's Office, and we thought we could pitch that combination really well. I think was a driving force, but also you just gotta you've gotta like someone, right? I I liked him. I I thought I could do this, but for sure I spent you know less time on that decision than any other major decision of my life. When you talk to people who are thinking about going off on their own, what's kind of the common piece of advice that you give them? I would say do it, and it's not that hard because lawyers charge a lot per hour. And the expenses can be kept really low. And so I always tell people, do it. Go out there and do it. It's really not that hard to earn a good living being out there on your own. You have to have a certain kind of mentality, though, right? And you definitely have to to do what you what you did throughout your career, which is be aggressive, take advantage of opportunities, ask for things, don't be afraid. Not all lawyers are who are conservative by nature. Many lawyers are conservative by nature, right, are comfortable doing all those things. I think that's true. But the one thing I'd say nowadays is no matter where you are, whether you're at a Davis Polk or whether you're a solo, you're going to be stomping that pavement. What street you stomp on is slightly different, right? Sure, the Davis Polks of the world are going to be having beauty contests before major financial institutions, and they may even be called and invited to do that. Whereas as a solo, you might have to really bang on that door and 
wiggle your toe into it. But all of us are out there trying to get business. And I think that's the one real criticism that I have of law school. And I don't know whether it's changed, but law school doesn't prepare you to be a business person. And I think you have to be a business person no matter where you are as a lawyer. So I I think that that's what I would tell people is no matter what your personality trait is, you've got to challenge yourself to go out there. I, I couldn't even ask or sell one box of Girl Scout cookies when I was younger. I really couldn't. I, I don't know how people do it. And I never thought I'd go out on my own. I'm a hugely anxious person, but I have to say, this is one area that I really have never lost sleep on. I always feel like the phone's going to ring. It doesn't ring every day. I wish it did, but it doesn't. But it's going to ring again. I want to try something. This is the first time we're going to do this on the podcast. Kind of like a rapid fire Excellent. question. Literally didn't even tell me you were going to do this. So. I told you. I told you. You told me, but I have no idea what the questions are. So I'm just going to sit back well, and drink I, my red wine I, I and let you guys. You're not going to drink Let you, you guys you fire away. You're not drink wine. I do get a special prize at the end of this, though. Right? It, they're very easy questions. We're just we're testing it out. Um, we it's might like have to a, cut this. We're not going to cut it. It's going to be great. So you're the test case for it. Um, it's and practically it just, like the Socratic method. It is. I feel like I'm back it in is. law school. It's a, like a real fast cross-examination. I just want you to kind of say the first thing that pops into your head. Go for it. All right. Direct or cross? Direct is much harder. What do you like more? Cross. Okay. Opening or summation? Opening. Why? I think first impressions are really important. Favorite law school class? Law clinic. Absolutely. By far. Do a law clinic. What clinic? Any clinic. I did legal aid. I did government benefits clinic. Any clinic. Get in there. Start working. What about evidence? Loved evidence. Professor Rossi. To this day, I still constantly think about him when I try to explain refreshing recollection. I don't know if you guys remember this. But he taught Barbary. So if you took Barbary, he was was the professor. And one thing he does is talk about how you can refresh someone's recollection at a deposition with anything, even a bowl of spaghetti. And I'll never forget that. And I talk (laughs) about it constantly. So that was a great class in law school. Law school class, that was the biggest waste of time. Easy. Property. Agreed. Ah, it was unbelievable. But worse than ever, because Cornell had invited someone from England to come teach it. And he literally taught out of the Barbary course. He, he taught out of the book, and we saw him up there with the book, and I, I walked out of class, and I don't think I ever walked back. <laughs> I got a B-minus in property, and I was thrilled with, my, with the result because I had no interest in what was going on. I thought I was going to fail. It was horrible. <laughs> Law school class that you didn't take that you wish you did? That's a good question. Criminal. I didn't take any criminal law classes. I oh, wow. really wish I had. How many hours a week did you study in law school? I have no idea, but I was incredibly anal, so I would say a lot. What case had the biggest impact on you at the U.S. Attorney's Office? I had a trial before Judge Chin. I represented the Postal Service, and a truck had The band or the organization? (laughs) The the fine organization that continues to exist despite snail mail— and uh, I was going to start singing The District Sleeps Alone Tonight if you <laughs> said the band. Craig would have liked to hear that, right? 
The plaintiff sued the Postal Service. She had, she was a pedestrian. She was walking outside of the crosswalk, and she got hit by a postal truck. And we went to trial, and I lost big time in that trial. And I learned a lot. Judge Chin was an alumni of the Civil Division. He was a big believer in the fact that we shouldn't be so afraid to have a blind cross. And hmm. I will never forget that to this day. Was your, did you open with, the mail is never late? <laughs> yes. I should have. That's what I would have done. See, I think that worked well, right? did. Okay. did. I liked that. Yeah. yeah. That is great. I think that's a good place to stop, too. It was great, guys. Thank Thanks you, for you so, much. so much for joining us. It was us. awesome. Much appreciated. 